Farmers today are facing rising costs, volatile markets, and extreme weather. The Better Way to Farm podcast digs into strategies to help you take control of farm inputs and maximize profit so your farm can thrive for generations. Remember to take advantage of our free resources at abetterwaytofarm.com. Now, from America's heartland, here's your host. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, Rod from A Better Way to Farm, where we increase yields and improve profits. That's the goal every day here, helping the American farmer. I'm super excited about what we're going to be doing today. I have a good friend on here I've known for quite some time, and he's been in this industry for a really long time, got a ton of experience, brings a lot of great value to us, and I'm very excited to hear what he has to say. And from Midwest Labs, I'd like to welcome Jim Gurliott to the show today. Jim, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. We really appreciate you guys. We appreciate Midwest Labs. Let's start with that. Let's do a little background on Midwest Labs. Tell us about the company. Absolutely. Midwest Labs had its start in 1975. The founder, Ken Pullman, began with soil and plant testing and expanded from there into feed, fertilizer, manure, compost. And as time went on, got to do water testing, you know, more, and then environmental water, wastewater, fuel, pet food uh, came along as it fit very well with the feed. And then we do a lot of food testing as well. So very diverse. That's fantastic. So basically, if I need it tested, you guys can about do it. I appreciate that fact that you're testing all the fertilizers and the compost, the manure, all of those things that should involve us. Specifically, talk to me for one second about a water irrigation suitability test, would you please? Absolutely. So clearly, there are lots of uh, growers out there that are using irrigation. And the problem sometimes can be that the water that they're using for irrigation is not as good as they would like to be. So there is a need to, to do an irrigation suitability. And we're looking for a number of different values, but in particular, sodium conductivity. We may be looking for sulfur, chloride. Ideally, we want to make sure that what's being applied to that soil is not going to hurt us down the road. If those values show that there may be a problem, we can manage that from that point. And that's really what those irrigation suitability tests are. Yes. And it's, you know, it's, you got to have the information so you make a good decision. And sometimes maybe it's the only water we have and it isn't what we should be using, but we can come up with a plan to start trying to farm around it. And so that's kind of the plan for what we're going to do there. We also, Jim, I don't know if you're aware of this, we use your water irrigation suitability test and we run it through the calculator to determine uh, the mineral content. And it tells us how much of our complete product we have to put in to sequester the minerals. And so we actually use it on spray water too. We found that the, and there's just a lot of information we can get out of it, but we appreciate you guys for doing that very much. How many tests do you guys run in a day just on soil? Well, this time of year is the most busiest time for soil. And since the middle of October, it's been a steady run of about 25,000 a day. We have the ability to, to do 30,000 a day. You know, it kind of ebbs and flows depending on moisture because we're getting soil in from all over the United States. And so we might see a little decline during a week and then it picks back up. But we like to keep the run at at 24,000 if possible. If there is a need to bump that up to near 30, we will do that. And we have been working Saturdays and we typically do in the fall uh, to keep up. And the goal is to 
continue to turn around those samples as, as we always do for our clients. So average turnaround right now is what? My soil test gets out there on a Monday. When will I probably be seeing results? If we receive it on Monday, you'll have results Wednesday. There's a possibility that there is another day attached to that turnaround. But this time of year, three to four business days. That's fantastic for those numbers. Jim, one of the questions that comes up in some people's mind, they hear you're running 25,000 tests a day. Talk to us about quality control. I know your system, but I would like you to explain it to everybody else. Talk to us about how it is that we know we don't get off base and run 10,000 tests before we catch it. Absolutely. And it isn't directly related to your question, but it's very important in the lab and that's calibration. And we calibrate our instruments on a daily basis. Secondly, we participate in a couple of different proficiency programs where we send samples into these programs and we expect to be within a certain value on those samples. They're known samples. So we have to make the mark, in other words, to pass. Thirdly, we have an a, a extensive check system within the lab. And so what I mean by that is every 40 samples, for instance, there is a check, a known sample. And there are different check samples throughout the runs every day. If something is wrong with that check sample, that known sample, we're going to stop. We're never going to test 10,000 samples and find out that all 10,000 are wrong because of those checks. Sure. And that, that's really a simple way of putting it, uh, but, but that's the best way to explain it. Absolutely. Basically, about the most that can be a problem is 10, because if you check every 10th one, and I love that. I've been out, I've toured the lab, and I encourage the listeners to come out and give a listen and actually look at how you guys do this. It's amazing. Have you moved into your new campus yet? We haven't. I believe going to be a little bit uh, longer than we anticipated. Building costs the way they are as well has factored <clears throat> into that. But um, you, th you think about you know moving to a new facility and it's just quite a project and we'll get there. <laughs> uh, it's just going to take a little more time than we anticipated. Absolutely. It's always interesting to do that. I'm excited to get to come and see that. Talk to us. I get this question a lot, Jim. I'm no tilling. How deep should I go? I'm conventional. How deep should I go? I'm strip tilling. What is the proper depth that you would recommend in a no-till or a minimum till situation? I am always encouraging clients to go that six inch depth, six and six to seven, I would say. But I guess six and two thirds is the official depth. But be consistent in doing that. And how you take those cores uh, based on your tillage practice uh, makes a difference too. So we're talking about a straight no till. So, so in a straight no till, where do you want the test pulled from? You want it pulled right in the row? You want it pulled in between the rows? And let me back up. I agree with you. The most important thing is I don't care if you use six or you use eight, but A, tell Midwest Labs what you did, and B, be very consistent. It's really important to be exactly the same depth every time. You agree with that? I do 100%, and I preach that all the time. There are several goals with taking soil tests, but one of those is trend lines. And when you're consistent, you will be able to see trend lines. If you're pulling a three-inch core and then a four and then a six and maybe an eight, you don't learn much with being inconsistent like that. So, yes. Absolutely. So, let's, we're in no-till situation. We're out there. It's November. Where do you want us putting the probe or grabbing the, using the grab-and-go drill bit? Do you want us in between the rows? you want us next to the row? What would you like? I would prefer that you stay at least three inches 
to the side of the row. I don't have a problem with taking a small percentage of the cores in the row, but the majority <laughs> I, I want outside of that row. Now, there are differing opinions on this, and I don't know that it's necessarily a, a wrong or right answer, but it, it still goes back to being consistent. And whatever you're doing now, continue to do that. And I agree from year to year, it's important that we do it the same way. Do you have a preference in a conventional till? We're going out, we're pulling tests. It's before we've tilled, but in a conventional till, I assume you're recommending the exact same thing, three inches off the row, if we're doing it before they've tilled. What you're saying in a conventional setting? Yes. I would recommend, there isn't going to be a row to stay out of, though, if I'm understanding you right. Correct. Well, I'm going to try to get them to go before they till it. That's my deal is let's let's pull the soil test before we rip it. Yeah. Same procedure. Yes. Okay. Excellent. I tell everybody, I have a friend and he says the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The next best time is this afternoon. I believe in my heart that the best time to take a soil test is in the fall. However, the second best time is whenever you can do it because the information is valuable no matter what. But do you have a preference? Do you prefer a fall test to a spring test? And which one and why? I do prefer a fall test, but there isn't a wrong time to take a sample. And this has a lot to do with just the, the volume that continues to come in. At, at a certain point, you can only do so much in the fall and, and you're going to have to decide, okay, this new business that I have is going to have to go in the spring or in season or whatever. We've always had a good spring run, but in recent years, that volume is, is increasing. Uh, what I would tell you is if fall works for you, do that, be consistent with it. If spring is a better time for you, that is great. There's no issue with that at all. We have clients that pull in season and have for years. There's nothing wrong with that. Be consistent. Another question that I get is in a drought situation, do I pull samples or do I wait? And Here's my answer to that. If you can pull a good core, so if you can consistently pull that six-inch depth, then I'm okay with pulling that sample in the fall. If you struggle getting that core, then wait. Are there differences between, let's say, a November 1st value versus March or March 1st? Yes, there will be some differences, but it's not going to be significant, and you can explain those differences. I would rather you have a have good cores and a good set of samples, data you can trust, than pulling a, a sample in, in the fall that just, you know, conditions are too dry, you can't get a good core. So if you can't get a good core, put it off until you can. Till spring. I had a unique question yesterday I never had before. One of my guys called me and said, hey, one of my clients put anhydrous on yesterday, and now he wants me to soil test. Yeah. I don't know what the answer to this is. How many days should we wait after an application of NH3? What's your answer to that, Jim? Well, I would prefer to wait at least a week, possibly two. But what is the goal? That would be my first question. Are you sampling to understand what nitrogen you have in the soil? Is this your test for fertility recommendations for the season? Um, Will NH3, would an application of NH3 impact phosphorus, potassium, all of the cations and the micros significantly or not too significantly? Not too significantly. I'm not overly concerned with that. Now, I'm willing to listen if there have been some situations where you've seen some issues. 
I have not. I just got that question. I thought I'm going to ask Jim that tomorrow because yeah. I don't know. I just instinct told me wait a week. I don't know why. Mainly because I just don't want to be out there on that. Another question. When I got started 30 years ago, Jim, they told us we had to have our soles dry, our soil test dry. So we, if it was too wet, we'd pull them and lay out, out on the garage floor and cover them with a sheet and all of those things to let them dry. The reality is today, talk to us. If we get a test, as long as it's a solid core and not gushy, can we go ahead and send that to you or do we need to dry it before we send it? You don't need to dry it. As long as you have a good core, which is to say a six-inch core, the depth that you you sample, it's it's fine. Now, is it going to be a mess? Yeah, but you don't need to dry it. If you would prefer to, you can. You don't need to. Okay. Briefly, we did a call on this last night. Had a great training. Actually used some of your information, but just touch briefly on we're pulling tests here. You are using the Bray method on the P&K unless the pH is high and then it's also some bicarb ammonium acetate on the cations and the DTPA on the micronutrients. Talk to us about why you prefer that in a synopsis as to why we prefer that to the Malik 3. The first reason has to do with what I opened with, and that, that's when we opened as a lab, and that was 1975. And these were the methods we were using then, and we still do. And that is, has a lot of value with our clients. And it goes back to talking about trend lines and, and accurate testing, accurate sampling. That's number one. There is value in looking at past data and knowing it's the same extraction methods. Two, there's just more correlation and calibration out there that you can find with using Bray-1, neutral ammonium acetate, and DTPA. I guess the third point I would make is we did a, a study back in 2015 comparing our standard extraction methods with Malik 3, and we found some in- interesting information by, by doing that. I've always felt like for phosphorus, Malik 3 is a good extraction method. It's similar to Bray in that it falls off as you get into highly alkaline soils, falls off as in our confidence level in that data. And that is why we run the Olson bicarbonate at 7, 4, and above pH. Uh, And that Olson bicarbonate value is the value we use to make those recommendations. On the cations, we found that Malik 3 was in the neighborhood of 10% higher than neutral ammonium acetate on K. Where it was really surprising was with magnesium and calcium. We found that mag was 20 to 30% higher with Malik 3 and for calcium, 30 to 40% higher. That's going to affect your CEC. The CEC value is a calculation. So that was a little disturbing. We tested, I think, in the neighborhood of uh, six to 700 samples, and they, they were sands, uh, heavy clays, acid soil, alkaline soil. It was a wide range of soil types. On the trace elements, the only one that correlated well with Malik 3 was zinc. While the correlation was good, the value was substantially different. What I mean by that is it was twice as high as DTPA. So if if we had a two DTPA, it was roughly four Malik three, but it correlated very well through, throughout that group of samples, roughly twice as high. That's where the correlation ended with the trace. <laughs> Iron and copper 
the R squared was 0.4, I believe, on both of those. And the values came back uh, very inconsistent, a lot of variation. Manganese was probably the worst R squared below uh, 0.1 on manganese. Boron is a little different because we're using a sorbitol for an extractant. It was still not great compared to Malik 3. Again, in general, it would be very difficult to do a regression equation with those trace elements. Well, I appreciate that. And that leads me to kind of my last point. Well, I'm going to give you a chance here in a minute to share just some closing thoughts. But I get on the road and I get people saying, ah, oh, micronutrient tests are completely in, unreliable and accurate. My response to them is, I understand with the labs that you're using, some of these other labs that may be. You know, I've seen manganese levels that were 400 parts per million, which would basically be toxic if they were really correct. But they're not getting extractable manganese. They're getting all of the manganese in any form there. So we feel, based on our relationship with you guys over the last 30 years, that when you come out with these values and then we make the recommendations off of them, the results are very consistent. And that, I assume, Jim, you would agree with me, is completely attributable to the method by which they're extracted, and therefore we can make predictions as to the response rates? Absolutely. That is, that is absolutely correct. And one thing I would say is, you know, when we talk about extraction methods in the lab, DTPA isn't as good as Bray for phosphorus, and it isn't as good as neutral ammonium acetate for the cations. However, we feel because of the consistency that it is still the best extraction methods for the trace elements. So I think there is some different management that you can incorporate in, in, in your operation when it comes to the trace elements and how you deliver it. Different management like that. But that data on the soil test, I feel is consistent and you will be able to see trend lines moving forward with that extraction method. Well, I appreciate that. Jim, I've already taken up more of your time than I should have. I am really grateful for what you do and for how you help the growers. If someone's interested in reaching out to Midwest Labs, how do they find you guys? Uh, you can certainly go to MidwestLabs.com. We've got a map of, of each of the field reps, the area that we cover. There are five of us, and there's a phone number and email attached to those. You can call the lab direct, 402 334 Seven 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 zero, and ask for an account manager for assistance or a phone number to one of us reps. Fantastic. Well, Jim, anything you'd like to add as we wrap this baby up? You mentioned it early on in the conversation. I will as well. And I, I think it's important if there is a, a grower, a retailer out there that is looking for a laboratory to utilize moving forward, the number one thing I would encourage them to do is tour the lab. What you want is confidence in the data. And I feel very confident that tour is going to serve you well. And so that, that would be my suggestion to anyone out there. All right, Jim. Well, I appreciate that. Guys, I appreciate you guys tuning into the podcast. As always, Jim, I appreciate your time. Guys, for those of you who are listening, thank you. And we really do hope you're having a better day. You're listening on the Verbal Crowd Network. Find more great shows at verbalcrowd.com.